remain standing for the reading of God's word. It comes from Psalm 33. But look, the Lord keeps his eyes on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. Wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we hope in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this truth. And God, you're our living hope. You're not a dead hope. You're not a past hope. You're a present hope. And God, my prayer is that every person in this room, that every single person would know you as their living hope today. Lord, as we give our attention to your word, open our hearts to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Just a few announcements this morning before we get going. Uh, Pastor Ryan is going to come up in a couple of minutes here and preach the word. I was here in the first service, and I'm telling you, this is a great sermon. You guys are going to be so blessed. Hope you take really good notes today. If you do need to take notes, you can follow along in your bullets in there. We do have an outline. You can follow him. Uh, but just a, cu- a couple of announcements about some staff transitions. Uh, Pastor Ryan, Patty, has essentially for the last year and a half or so been doing the job of two full-time staffers. He has been overseeing the children's ministry uh, and leading the team that provides for our children's ministry and also our youth team. And our youth team, our youth group, are just, they're just flourishing. They're just growing. And so what we want to do is we want to, tra- yes, amen. Uh, so what we want to do is transition Ryan. The elder board wants to transition Ryan to more full-time effort and attention to the youth ministry and then also oversee the entire uh, children's and family ministry. And then also Teresa Stonecipher, who is currently our women's director, is going to be transitioning to full-time uh, children's director. We are really excited about that. She is going to do a fabulous job. And to replace her, we have no idea. So uh, please send us your resumes. We're taking resumes. If you'd like to apply for that job, that is a part-time job, uh, women's director. And uh, so we, so do be praying for the staff, be praying for the elders, be praying for everyone who is in transition. And also Sebastian uh, Zornosa, who has been very faithfully serving as our youth director, he will be transitioning out of that role. He will still be in the youth group. Don't worry. He'll still be there. For some of you, you're like... That's, that's bad news right now. No, he'll still be there uh, as a volunteer, uh, but be praying for him as well. Well, I'm going to invite Ryan to come up. Give him a hand. Thank him for his effort. <laughs> and I just want to say one more thing about this young man. I love this young guy. Appreciate his heart. And listen, if you have questions about any of these staff transitions, <laughs> Ryan will be down front later to answer those questions. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Good morning. Thankful to be gathered with you on this Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 23 today. As he said, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to serve this church. Um, And so anybody who is new, welcome. Uh, We're glad that you have decided to worship with us, and we hope that you feel uh, encouraged and uh, hopefully greeted by many people this morning. When I was younger in elementary school, my mom worked for a television production company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this production company would make commercials for various companies, both in Tulsa and really across the United States. 
And part of the perks of her having that job was that they often needed last-minute people to fill in and be in these commercials. So I remember one time my sister and I getting to be in a commercial for a large pizza chain across Oklahoma and Texas, and we had to smile at the table and keep smiling even while we're stuffing our faces with pizza. Another time, this one was for a mall in the Northeast, I had to run around with some other kids and they had these big inflatable hammers and we had to hit each other with these hammers while we wore specific clothes from specific department stores because that would make people buy those clothes. And even from these early memories, it was clear to me and everyone else that the Lord was calling me to be the next Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise. (laughs) I'm not even sure why you're laughing. No, I'm kidding. I actually hated it. I couldn't stand being under the lights and the camera, but it paid really well for an elementary school kid, so I got to buy some nice toys. But one thing always stands out from these early memories, and that is the director. He was the one clearly in charge, telling us how to sit and how to play, informing the cameraman of the right angles, making sure the lighting was just right, and he was the one who, in a way, saw what the end video, the end production, should look like. He understood the pieces, and he was working to put them together in a very specific way. And in a very small way, that director who stands out from my memories is similar to God orchestrating the events here at the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 22 through 28, and really the entirety of human history, we would say. There are acts and scenes unfolding of a grand storyline here, and the providence of God is clearly on display. But in this section that we have today of Paul's journey, it's really subtle rather than overt. Because from chapter 22, verse 22, all the way until chapter 24, verse 14, the Lord is only mentioned one time. The rest of the time, Luke is simply giving us, it feels like, a historical account, an account of Paul's trials and his tribulations and the progression of Paul going to Rome. So when we read it, at first, it doesn't feel like much. It's just kind of the historical narrative. It reminds me of the book of Esther, if you're familiar with it, where there's this long historical account without a direct mention of God. But just like the book of Esther, to the Christian reader looking for the providence of God in that passage, he is there. And as Francis Schaeffer famously wrote, he is not silent. So for our sermon today, looking at God's overruling providence, the main point we need to keep in mind is that God is providentially guiding Paul through trials and sufferings to go to Rome for the spread of the gospel and the building up of his church. That's the main point in this section of Acts. And as Jeff mentioned, we uh, have the outline for you in the bulletin if you have one, but here in Acts chapter 23, we have three acts, or really three parts of this drama that we see unfolding, and it could definitely be a blockbuster movie today. So first we have the trial, and that's in verses 1 through 10. Then we have the conspiracy in verses 11 through 22 followed by the escape in verses 23 through 35. And these three broad divisions of the chapter will help us to understand what is happening overall. But within these three parts, what we're going to focus on are six scenes that show Paul's defense and God's deliverance in chapter 23, and how these scenes help us to see how the providence of God is overruling all of Paul's life. So before we jump in, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. We, as your gathered people, love you and desire to glorify you and to praise your name. And so, Father, we are coming, all of us, from different weeks, different experiences. Some of us are in despair and weary from what is going on in life. Others of us are content and hopeful and joyful, and we have everything in between. 
But I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would turn our hearts and our minds to continue to worship you through the study of your word this morning. And may your spirit apply these words to our hearts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 23 is where we are. And I'll actually start reading from verse 30 of chapter 22 for this trial. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Verse 1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? Verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisee, and I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. Verse 9, the shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. Notice this, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him to the barracks. Here in this first section of the trial... There are certain scenes that stand out, and there's three of them in this section. And the first is this, a righteous anger. A righteous anger. Paul here, in an unjust manner, is dragged before the Sanhedrin on some serious but false charges. And as we remember, the Sanhedrin were the ruling religious authority of the day, made up of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and here they are governed by the high priest Ananias. Rome had to recognize this Jewish governing body in order to have peace with them. They had to recognize them to some extent. And here we have this scene with Ananias. He was a wicked man. He always sought favor with the Roman courts, even at the expense of his own people. Josephus, the historian Josephus, records how he would steal more from the tithes to the temple and therefore defraud the poor priests who needed to live off them. The Jewish nationalists hated him so much that they ended up murdering him a few years after this, bringing credence, I think, to Paul's rebuke. He was an unjust man, and that is shown in his actions towards Paul. And so Paul appeals to his clean conscience as part of his defense. He's saying, I've done nothing wrong. And immediately, Ananias has him slapped. A grave insult in Jewish society. And so Paul responds with righteous anger. It is against the law for him to be treated in such a way, and he rebukes Ananias for his sin. And it's that idea of righteous anger that I want to dwell on for a moment with you. You see, friends, there is such a thing as a righteous anger. Paul tells the church in Ephesians to be angry yet do not sin. So a righteous anger, a righteous response to injustice, whether it's committed against us or someone else, is part of what it means for us to have the Holy Spirit within us. 
Our God is a God who embodies perfect justice, and his people should pursue God-honoring and biblical justice. And Paul's response here is a stern and prophetic rebuke for someone committing an injustice, for someone to be going against God's clear law in a matter of law was astounding to Paul. Ananias is supposed to be rightly adjudicating the law, and here he is clearly breaking it. So there is a righteous anger that we should show in the face of injustices. Many of you here, I know, have had injustices committed against you. You think back to moments of abuse, to moments of unfairness in life or at your job, to situations where a wrong was committed against you or against your family, and there is a righteous anger that wells up inside of you. I want to say two quick things to that. The first is that righteous anger is okay. Being angry and not sinning is how we are called to act and behave in those moments. There is a time for anger and lament and sorrow in the face of injustice, and so I simply want to affirm that to you. But don't fall prey to the lies that God is unhappy with you or that your sin immediately caused the injustice to happen. Injustices will happen in a fallen world until Christ comes. And as a reminder, even for Paul here, God is still providentially guiding the events and the circumstances that he finds himself in. So for us here today, who are struggling in the midst of this, he sees you. He sees you in the midst of it. And we're going to talk about this later, but he's working out all things for your good and his glory. And sometimes that takes faith in our part in the midst of it. But secondly, the second quick thing I want to say is that the heart is deceitful above all else. So do not automatically assume that stewing in your anger is always a righteous act. And do not assume that every moment of anger has some righteousness in it. I would argue that righteous anger is often rare and that more often than not how we react and respond to situations in anger is far from righteous. But all of us here must check our hearts and our actions against God's word and his spirit to see where we are in error. And here in this passage, Paul responds with a righteous anger, but it seems like he goes a little too far. And that brings us to our second scene, a righteous humility. A righteous humility. When confronted with the truth that he just spoke against the high priest, although he had been sinned against, and although this man was for all appearances evil and unjust, Paul responds with a righteous humility, and he admits his wrongdoing. Oh, friends, how hard is this for us today? If we're being honest in our heart of hearts, we, we tend to simmer in our anger to want the other person to feel the wrong they committed against us, to know the hurt they brought about against us. And friends, there might be a respectful time and place to do that, but some of you might be holding on to an anger for years and years that festers and flares up at various times, an anger that does sometimes cause you to sin. Don't let your desire for the truth to be known and the way you communicate that undermine your Christian witness. Don't let it undermine your Christian witness. How often do we respond in humility when our anger goes too far? The reality of God's word is that it confronts all areas of our lives, not just the ones we want it to. And Paul recognized this, and look what he quotes even in the scripture as the grounds of his humility. You must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Always bring it back to scripture. 
A righteous person indwelled by God's Holy Spirit will know when they go too far, will know when sin is creeping in, and will respond with a humble repentance. But thirdly, we see here in the midst of this trial a righteous discernment. A righteous discernment. This is probably my favorite part of Paul's trial. In a cunning way, he uses wisdom and discernment to both position himself more rightly in this trial and then to bring to light part of the theological issues that are underlying it. And so he recognizes that both Sadducees, those who don't believe in a resurrection and have some serious misunderstandings about the relationship between the soul and the body, he recognizes that they're present and that also the Pharisees are present. And so he cries out on their most debated point, I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And then the Sanhedrin erupts. Back in college, I was working through some theological issues and trying to differentiate what I had been taught growing up versus what God, through his word, teaches us. And so just about every night for two semesters, me and a group of friends would be in the library doing homework, but really just debating theology. And these are some of my favorite memories from college. Some of my favorite memories from college. And I was dating Laura at the time, and she would probably tell you these were some of her most annoying memories from college. But we would often get riled up, often get shushed by the librarian. I realize I'm being nerdy in this, but one night in particular stands out because typically the debate would stay at our table, but not this night. On this night, multiple other tables joined in, and and there's a kind of a crowd around us. I can't even honestly remember what we were debating, but it felt frenzied and energetic and a bit chaotic. Students were raising their voices and yelling at one another. Uh, the opposing sides were arguing against one another. The police had to come and break us up. I'm just kidding. That was a librarian. But she felt like the police in the moment. But this is kind of how I picture what happens as Paul throws out this theological hand grenade and the chaos erupts as the two sides go at it. And while our library debates never got bloody like the Sanhedrin ones, Paul knew what he was doing. He used God's wisdom in this moment. He was intentional with this statement about the resurrection. Two weeks back, Jeff offered some great points in the sermon on what it looks like for us to be falsely accused and how to respond rightly in those situations. And here we see the wisdom of Paul in understanding how to navigate these issues. He uses God-given wisdom and his rational faculties redeemed by the Holy Spirit to find a way out. And the Lord Jesus, if you remember, told his disciples that moments like this would happen when he sent them out in Matthew chapter 10. He tells them, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. So I simply want to say, if you are in the midst of that right now, if you're experiencing false accusations in your life, I recommend you go back and listen to that sermon. But in the same manner, be someone who uses discernment who recognizes the structures and the laws and the procedures of the place in which God has providentially placed us to live. And use those wisely insofar as you can. Injustices come, though. False accusations will happen. And in the face of unrighteous judges and unrighteous rulers, we can feel anger and disappointment and despair and maybe even cry out, How long, O Lord? But let us remember this. 
that our God is on his throne. That he is working in ways that we can't see or even imagine. And sometimes we would struggle at times to fathom. And we need discernment in all areas of our lives in order to live a righteous life. Let's keep reading though. You can tell that Paul has ruffled quite a few feathers by what we're about to read. And the second act is the conspiracy. Acts chapter 23 verses 11 to 22. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you're going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. Verse 16, But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you. Because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. Two scenes stand out from this particular act of Acts chapter 23. And the fourth one that we've seen is, so far is a courageous resolve. Fourth and our sixth is a courageous resolve. I mentioned earlier that this section of Acts has almost two chapters that only mention the Lord one time. And it's found in verse 11. Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. To testify about what? Well, it's ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that God through Jesus Christ is reconciling sinners to himself so that all who place their faith in him, their hope in him, their trust in him alone can have their sins forgiven and have a right relationship with God. And when that happens, you now belong to the kingdom of God. You are an ambassador for it, and you are called to go and share that good news with others. That's what Paul is going to testify about ultimately. That's the good news that's going to go to the Gentiles But I want to think about, for a second, Paul's position. As much as he was a man of God who trusted the Lord, he was probably wondering, what in the world is happening here? He's almost been killed a few times by riots already. People hate him for the message that he's proclaiming. He's about to hear of another plot for his life. He's human as well, and so we can only imagine the weariness that comes sitting and waiting in a cold Roman prison for who knows what to come. But the Lord knows just the moments in our lives when we need that spark of encouragement, doesn't he? That reminder from his word, that encouragement from our brother or sister in the Lord, that assuring presence of the Holy Spirit that brings about an untouchable peace in our lives. And the Lord comes to him with just such a moment. Have courage, he tells Paul. 
The old translation is, be of good cheer. In other words, I have a purpose for you, Paul. Your time is not yet done. This might seem like the end, but there's more to take place. To the weary and the downtrodden here. To the anxious and the depressed. To those who need just such a moment from the Lord. Hear these two words from his holy scriptures now. Take courage. Remember who is ultimately in control. Come tribulations and trials and despair. Remember who is control and purposefully guiding and directing all things. These are two words used here to bolster Paul's spirit. And since all scripture is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, allow them to bolster yours too. Take courage. As Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his book, Spiritual Depression, our danger is to submit ourselves to our feelings and allow them to dictate to us, to govern and to master us and to control the whole of our lives. In the midst of these moments, don't allow them to dictate to you what is true and what is not. Submit them to the Lord and continually cast your eyes to him. Take courage. Be of good cheer. Look to the cross as a reminder of his love for you. Don't succumb to the circumstances of this life. Have eternal eyes that look at the life to come. I love what John Bunyan wrote uh, concerning the difficulties of the Christian life. He says, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up, heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. I love that line. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Take courage, weary heart, here today, and look to the Lord. And as we said in our main point, the, the Lord is guiding Paul to Rome, both through trials and sufferings. And this is exactly what we see in the next scene a foolish vow. Scene number five, a foolish vow. Verse 12 reads, When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So they do just this. They're going to fast until they kill him. This is crazy, right? We can agree on this. This is a little crazy. I mean, for those of us who like to eat, we struggle with our daily fast from lunch to dinner, all right? And they don't even know how long this is going to last. But their intent is to murder Paul because they are unhappy with how the proceedings are going. He keeps getting out of their grasp. Rome is protecting him. But we know the truth. It's not Rome who's protecting him. It's God who's protecting him. The riot started back in Acts chapter 22 when he told them that he was commissioned by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And God is going to see that through no matter what. So they make a foolish vow that they can't ultimately fulfill. The law had a provision for vows that could end if they couldn't be seen through. And so I do think that these men ate again. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. But notice this reoccurring theme really throughout the entire book of Acts. Not just here, but throughout the entire book of Acts. Think back what we've seen in these past months. The beings of this world, the principalities and rulers of this age are diametrically opposed to the things of God. To reject the message of Christ, if you don't know Christ, simply put, what that means is that you are still dead in your sins and that your mind is darkened to the things of God. These men who vow to kill Paul, though, are manifesting a sinful and corrupt nature that the gospel came in part to undo. 
But Satan will use any means possible in this war. He is a liar. He's a deceiver. He will not stop fighting his losing battle until he is destroyed once and for all. And so for us living in the here and now, after the cross, awaiting Christ's final coming, in the already and the not yet, we must recognize foolishness for what it is. Recognize the foolishness that seeks to oppose the things of God and the sin that is ultimately behind those things. Recognize the thoughts and the beliefs and the ideologies that are fundamentally contrary to what God has revealed about us and commanded us to obey. Friends, tying this back in with earlier, we need discernment. We need to understand how foolishness manifests itself today in various forms. This vow that they make here in Acts chapter 23, it might seem weird to our ears today, but it's the effects of sin behind making the vow that has gone nowhere in the last 2,000 years. So we don't take vows to kill people, but we still hate them in our hearts. We don't plot to destroy others like this group of 40 men did, but we gossip and behind their backs and demean them to subtly make ourselves look better. The foolishness of sin that we see and we sometimes are tempted to believe and act upon and even sometimes do believe and act upon reveals to us all the more our need to look to Christ, to die to ourselves, to forsake the things of this world and to flee to him. The foolishness of sin should cause us to recognize the faithfulness and the beauty of our Savior. So ultimately, sin manifests itself here in this foolish vow, but a vow is not the main point here in Acts chapter 23. The main point is that this world and the rulers of this age and the people who are still dead in their trespasses and sin will always fundamentally be opposed to God and his gospel. So recognize that. Continue to work faithfully at being a witness for Christ and being a disciple of his, and in the midst of this sinful and foolish world, continue to look to Christ day by day. This brings us to our last act in this drama of Acts 23, and it's called The Escape, and it's also going to be our last scene that we're going to talk about, a certain deliverance. Scene number six, a certain deliverance. Allow me to summarize what happens in the rest of this, the rest of this chapter. Paul's nephew, as we read, goes to Paul and tells him of the conspiracy, and Paul directs him to go and inform the Roman commander. The commander listens, and then as you read in the text, he gets 470 soldiers to go and escort Paul away from the city. He recognizes that it's a serious threat. So the soldiers escort Paul, and they take him to Felix, and that's where the story's going to pick up again next week, as Paul, again, is being guided by God to end up in Rome. But think with me here about this deliverance. If you remember back in verse 11, the Lord told Paul to take courage because he is going to have Paul testify in Rome. And I simply want to dwell in these last few minutes on this simple but very encouraging truth about our triune God. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. What he says will come to pass always does come to pass. When he wills something to take place, it takes place. If he speaks about a matter, you can be sure that it is spoken about rightfully and truthfully. He is a God who backs up his words with actions. So when we read about this deliverance of Paul, we can almost take it for granted. Well, of course the Lord's going to save him. But think, friends, on the character of the God who makes this deliverance. He's a God who promises in the Old Testament 
made promises in the Old Testament, and he keeps those promises. A God who promised to give his people new hearts, and he kept that promise. A God who told Paul to take courage because he's going to Rome, and Paul wound up in Rome. He's a God who promises to never leave you nor forsake you. A God who promises that you won't be plucked out of his hand. A God who promises that all who come to him, we will never cast out. And in the midst of trials and sufferings and tribulations in this life and even despair, he is a God, as it says in Romans 8, 28, who is working out all things for our good. Paul probably did not feel that at all times. You most definitely will not feel that at all times. But it's in the midst of those times when you have to remind yourself of the promises of God and cling to him and what he says to be true. And it's in the midst of those times of despair that you have to remember that you serve a God who keeps his promises. Sometimes when you don't have anything else to hold on to in life, when it feels like everything is caving in, you have to hold on to the promises of God. Promises that, as we know, this side of the cross are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Only a God who is sovereign over all. Only a God who has an overruling providence over all things and all people can make those types of promises and see them through until the end. That's the God we serve. Not some fickle God who doesn't know what's going to happen. We serve a God of complete providence. Paul had a final testimony that the Lord wanted him to give in Rome. And none of those men who made that vow, those 40 plus men who made that vow, thought that he would live to see the next day. But the Lord made certain that he would see it and that he would wind up in Rome. The old saying is true, man is immortal until his work is done. And that is true for us as well. If you're here and you're breathing, the Lord is not done with you yet. You have a final testimony to give. You have more work to do for your king. You have another opportunity to share Christ, another moment to comfort or encourage or to show grace. Our work is not done, but praise God that in the midst of this life, in this fallen world with the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns and the highs and the lows and everything else we experience, we serve a God who promised to be with us, a God who has promised to see us through those things and a God who has promised that we will be with him for eternity. And this God delivers on his promises. So in closing, let me offer just a few application points for us to consider from this message. And the first is this, remember the evidences of God's providence in your life. Remember the evidences of God's providence in your life. For many of us, this is easier as we think back over moments and times in our lives where God has clearly delivered us or made a way when it didn't seem like there is a way, or guided us through the valley, or opened up doors that we never thought would be open in our lives. Each of us who have been in Christ for some time can think back on these moments and give praise and thanks and gratitude to God. But just like the biblical stories of faith that we read in the scriptures, we read about from past saints and how they reinforce our faith today, we need to take the time to remember God's kindness to us over the years And allow those moments in our lives to reinforce our faith today. His overruling providence over our lives, more than anything else it might be, should be a comfort and encouragement to us as we navigate life in this world. Secondly, learn to trust God's providence today. Remember his past providences and then learn to trust his providence today. If you're anything like me, this is the hardest one. We like to be in control I like to be in control. The staff would maybe say amen to that. We like to make things happen in a certain order. 
not too loud there, Daniel. <laughs> we like to make things happen in a certain order or in a certain way in our lives. But like this section of Acts 23, many times in our lives, God's providence isn't always recognizable to us in the moment. It's not always apparent how he is working or what he's actually up to. Simply put, this calls for faith on our part. Faith in the promises of God and in the character of the God we serve. It's like the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, we cannot always discover the work that God has done from beginning to end. One pastor wrote, when we walk in faith with God, we receive the best, surest, truest, most eternal aspect of his promise, and that is the presence of God himself. Faith in God delivers you in the presence of God himself, come what may in this life. So in the midst of life, in the midst of you wondering if God is hearing your prayers today and truly working out all things for your good, learn to trust his providence. You won't do it perfectly in all the seasons, none of us do, but resolve that you would grow in your daily trust of him. Last but not least, rest in God's providence for what may come. Rest in God's providence for what may come. Remember the past evidences. Learn to trust it today. And then rest in what may come. The future of our lives is a mystery that only he knows. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow. He alone sees the beginning to the end. We each have dreams in here. We have desires. All of us have hopes and plans for what we think might happen, what we hope might happen. Give those to the Lord. I'm not saying don't dream, don't have hopes and desires. I'm simply saying that a, apart from a prayerful submission of those dreams and desires to his overruling providence, we run the risk of relying on our own strength and our own power, and we run the risk, as it says in James chapter 4, of possibly becoming arrogant, as if we are in complete control of our lives. He alone knows what is coming, and so we need to rest in that. We need to remember the past evidences of God's providence in our lives. We need to learn to trust his providence today. And we need to rest Christ's community and the providences that might come. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you that we as your church are gathered here this morning. And God, we praise you that you are a God who is in control. We don't serve a God who doesn't know what's going to happen, who sometimes just wills things and hopes that it might happen. No, we serve a God who is in complete control from the minutia of our lives to the big events of this world. You are in control, God, and so we simply want to confess that this morning. And God, we recognize, though, that in the midst of despair and heartache and worry and anger and all of the above, it sometimes doesn't feel like you are, or sometimes, Father, we don't even think that you are. So God, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for not trusting you. And God, as we think on this chapter of Acts chapter 23 and just the clear providence that is at display and the various scenes that we looked at, God, simply put, we want to be people who are faithful in remembering your providences in our lives. Remembering your providences in this church. God, help us to learn to trust your providence today and help us to rest in the God who sees the end from the beginning and who knows what is coming. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.